0: Hello, America, and happy Friday. What a busy week it has been. Just think about the last 24 hours. We had the second of two hearings on censorship in America. This one in the House Judiciary Committee with the Weaponization of Federal Government Subcommittee, the Church Committee, as we sometimes call it as a code name, modeled after the 1970s FBI investigation in the Senate. And if that wasn't a big enough news, Mike Pence learned today, or last night, that he's been subpoenaed by the... Special prosecutor investigating Donald Trump. That's a big moment. A vice president being subpoenaed. No, no fooling around there. And moving quickly, it looks like, to my best sense of it. And then the chairman of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, James Comer, has been on this show many times. He spent some time and put out a really significant letter to the Biden family. One went to Hunter Biden, the son of the president. One went to James Biden, the brother of the president. The third went to a business partner of the president. And it asked them, compelled them to turn over information, banking records, and others they have. And it is likely that this is the precursor to a full subpoena. And I think that that is where this is almost certainly headed over the next few days and weeks. So that was a big one. And then a story that broke on just the news, the FBI yesterday, withdrew an intelligence product, withdrew it, pulled it back from all the field offices in the country. It had come out of the Richmond office of the FBI, and it said that Latin Rite Catholics, those who do pre-Vatican II masses, prefer to go to mass with the Latin language, not the English language version, that they posed an extremist threat, that they had white supremacist and violent tendencies, and that FBI agents should look for ways to infiltrate Catholic groups where these Latin Rite Catholics seem to practice. That is a stunning, stunning move by the FBI. The separation of powers on faith is huge. But it wasn't just that. When we dug into it and we learned more about this bulletin, which was put out by an FBI whistleblower named Kyle Serafin, who's done some really great work, there's a pretty extraordinary twist. Where did they get the idea, the information, the list of extremist Catholics from? Well, it came from the left liberal Southern Poverty Law Center. Hmm. There's a pattern here. Let's just go through this for a second. In 2016, the FBI stubbed its toe and embarrassed its entire agency by pursuing a Russia collusion case. Where'd that come from? Oh, a Democratic campaign and a Democratic Party. Hmm. In 2021, the FBI began investigating parents as domestic terrorists just for expressing their opinions at school board meetings. Where'd that come from? Oh, wait a second. A liberal-leaning teachers' union. oh And a school board group. Hmm. Wait, wait, I got another one. The FBI starts investigating Catholics as a... Th- Where'd that come from? A left-leaning advocacy group known as the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, the FBI keeps stubbing its toe, embarrassing itself, eroding its credibility by constantly taking information as though it were to come from liberal advocacy sources. And it's that lack of balance that then creates the perception among some Americans that the FBI is a dual system of justice. And this Catholic one is almost certainly going to resonate. Now, to the credit of the FBI, when I asked for a statement, they said, we've retracted it. This did not meet the standards of the FBI the exacting standards that the FBI is supposed to have for an intelligence product. It's been pulled back from all FBI offices and it didn't get anywhere else. That's a good thing, right? But when called on it, the FBI didn't double down like it did on Russia collusion for a while. It fixed it. But this repeated cycle of the FBI falling for partisan allegations and then having to pull back, apologize, acknowledge wrongdoing, acknowledge failures, it keeps happening. And pretty soon... The Federal Bureau of Investigation is going to be known by a different acronym of FBI. Famous, but incompetent. And I think that that is one of the really significant challenges that the FBI, with its latest charade, latest mistake, faces. And it's too bad. Now, I want to say something too. You're going to hear on Saturday from an extraordinary whistleblower, George Hill, an FBI agent. And he came forward and blew the whistle, and he and all of his colleagues, in the Boston FBI, resisted successfully inappropriate pressure from the Washington field office to investigate 140 Americans for uh, simply taking a bus ride to Washington, DC for the January 6th rally by President Trump. That is not the basis for any predicated investigation. And these agents held the line. The agent who leaked the information to Kyle Seraphine who then made it public, again, doing the right thing. There is an extraordinary network of people coming out and blowing the whistle. And I think each one of these steps, each one of these developments is beginning to create a picture that we need to fix and help fix the FBI. That's what the policymakers in Washington got to do. It's not making excuses and just go in and fix it. Everyone I'm talking to that cares about the FBI, cares about the rule of law, cares about civil liberties and freedom and liberty in itself is starting to see that. And the FBI has to stop falling for these terrible mistakes that intrude on religious freedom, free speech, parental rights, an election, right? That is what needs to be rectified. The political imbalanced cycle of failure that keeps happening in the FBI. Now, we've got a couple great guests for you today. This is a fun podcast. Congresswoman Kat Kamick from the great state of Florida is going to join us. She always has a great insight. She was at those hearings. She knows what those hearings were like. And I can't wait to talk to her. She always brings a lot of insight. And then after that, you're going to hear from Chris Barnard. First time on the show, he's a vice president at the American Conservation Coalition, a group I think we've heard from their leader, Benji Backer, before, who are helping conservatives develop a clean air, clean energy, clean water plan for America so that young voters who care about the environment don't feel like Republicans don't care, but that it be achieved in the manner that Teddy Roosevelt achieved the national park system and Ronald Reagan achieved fixing the hole in the atmosphere without wrecking our economy, without selling people a bill of goods that ends up fraudulently spending too much money. And Chris Barnard is going to give us that recipe. By the way, one of the biggest climate change plans ever offered was created by President Donald Trump and Energy Secretary Rick Perry. It just doesn't get any attention. But he gets to the same type of targets that Barack Obama and Joe Biden have been promising us for 15 years at much less the cost with much more rationale. Why? Natural gas and nuclear play a much larger role in reducing emissions. than the electric, 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 solar, 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 win, win, win That hasn't yet really achieved the sort of savings that Barack Obama promised us and Joe Biden keeps promising us. So Chris Barnard, Congresswoman Kat Kamek, back to back, really great show today. Hope you enjoy it. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be back with Congresswoman Kat Kamek.
1: All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. We are very lucky to have one of the lawmakers who worked yesterday on that extraordinary weaponization committee hearing, the first real look at how the government is being weaponized and being turned against its own people. And joining us right now from the great state of Florida is Congresswoman Kat Kamek. Congresswoman, great to have you back on the show.
2: Oh, thank you so much, John. Happy Friday.
1: Happy Friday. You have to be exhausted. You've been working on so many big things this week, but (laughs) yesterday seemed to be the day that Americans got the full narrative about why yeah. we have to investigate federal agencies for weaponization. Tell us a little bit about what you think Americans walked away from yesterday's extraordinary hearing.
2: You know, I, I can't stress this enough, I, and I said it in my opening statements um, in yesterday's weaponization hearing, this oversight uh, in protecting the civil liberties and constitutional rights of every American, regardless of your party affiliation, it is some of the most consequential work that we in Congress um, can do. And, you know, I, I a little bit tongue in cheek alluded to the fact that when Democrats conduct oversight, they're hailed as heroes. Yet um, when Republicans do it, we're labeled conspiracy theorists. And so I I think that's a pretty important distinction to make because we just, you know, lived through two years of the political witch hunt of the January 6th committee, which, of course, was entirely one sided. And I was quick to point out yesterday that. You know, this is different. Well, this is bipartisan, and we actually allowed the minority to choose the members that they put on the select committee, you know, versus the January 6th committee. So there's a key distinction in that, you know, there is representation throughout this committee. The other part of that, and and again, I talked about this in my opening remarks, was, you know, our founding fathers were well acquainted with a tyrannical government. You know, that, that's how this whole wild, crazy experiment in individual liberties and freedoms and our constitutional republic got started. And so it is upon us now to be very diligent in making sure that that same uh, bureaucracy does not grow beyond its size and scope and then begin to infringe on the liberties that are clearly outlined within the Bill of Rights. So, uh, you know, we talked a lot yesterday about the DOJ and the FBI. And why is that relevant to everyday Americans? Well, when the FBI is being tasked to go after parents who have expressed concerns at their local school boards about what their children are being taught and labeled a domestic terrorist despite the fact that there is no statute for delineating what a domestic terrorist is. That's the problem. When you have uh, the FBI and the administration and agencies coordinating with big tech, essentially pressuring a private company to then do their bidding in deplatforming, censoring, silencing dissenting voices—that's a problem. And for every agency that we have on the books, you can really see that there is truly, literally, a weaponization occurring in in wow. the, the ammunition and tactical ballistic gear and and weapons that they actually accrue. Why does the Department of Education need an, uh, an armory? I don't know. But then the 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 more uh, the, the broadly uh, weaponization of how they collect data on every single American without a warrant. And then uh, one of the questions that I asked, and I know I'm, I'm giving you a very long winded answer here, but bear with me. One of the things that, that I asked was you know, not only is there a concern about the fact that we have FISA court abuses and uh, the warrantless collection of personal data, but does it not pose an international, national security threat? given the fact that these agencies seem to have breaches and leaks nonstop and all that data that they have illegally, unconstitutionally collected is now out there for bad actors abroad to take advantage of? Why is that not a concern for Republicans and Democrats? And so this is the kind of work that we're going to be digging into.
1: It was an extraordinary hearing those two whistleblowers really gave us insight about what the rank-and-file yep. members worry so much about their bosses. They see their bosses going wayward. And while that was going on, Congresswoman, literally as the hearing was going on, the FBI had to go through yet another real example of bias. Yesterday afternoon they announced, we had this on the site, that they were withdrawing an intelligence product from the Richmond office, which had encouraged FBI agents to consider Catholics who practice the Latin Mass, They go to where in the Latin language as potential white supremacists and extremist threats. And they encouraged fellow FBI agents to try to embed and infiltrate some Catholic groups. The FBI immediately withdrew this when it became public and said this was not a product that met its exacting standards. And they've begun an internal investigation. But what we learned about that was that the information for that memo came from the Southern Poverty Law Center. That's a liberal group. The information that came for the Russia collusion, the case, came from the Democratic Party. The information to treat parents as a terrorist threat when they were just going to the school boards came from a left-leaning school board school administrator group it seems like the fbi keeps doing the bidding of these political groups that lean left when do you think they get the message that that's not what their job is their job is to solve crimes not settle political disputes
2: I think it's really uh, it, it's really shocking when you really start paying attention and looking at how the central Washington office is centralizing their power, really pushing a narrative and a line down to the field offices to toe. And then when the field offices push back, then you have retribution that should be concerning because at that point you're not chasing the truth. You're not you're not going where the evidence is leading you as a law enforcement agency should. But what they're doing is they're trying to predict the outcome. They're trying to game the system, right? And so if you at any point in time step out of line with what the the Biden administration or any administration for that matter, this this goes beyond that. Any administration And their political leadership is saying, then you become a target. And so I think it's really important to note that we are not going after the good rank and file agents of the FBI. There are wonderful people who have dedicated their life's work in in this in this space. And so um, we are trying to ultimately root out the corruption at the highest levels that is pushing this political narrative And using those counterterrorism resources that traditionally had been directed abroad are now coming in, they're turning inward. Um, That, to me, I think, is something that the American people uh, are unaware of and need to be aware of so that we can really get to the bottom of this. and, And like I said, correct, course, correct.
1: Such an astute analysis. When you hear from rank and file agents, what you just say is their biggest wish, that Congress do exactly that. Because that's the easiest way to fix it. There's clearly a path to fixing this. And I know that's really all Republicans want. Every time we can say, oh, this is about shaming people in politics, it's not. It's no. just about fixing an agency so we can all have confidence in it again. And I think you've begun that process. You had another extraordinary moment yesterday doing double duty over the last few days. <laughs> Brand new emails showing us what went on inside the medical professional health industry under Dr. Fauci, under Dr. Collins another example of cancel culture or weaponization of government to silence critics tell us about these emails that you introduced at the energy and commerce subcommittee hearing the other day
2: well so it, you're right i mean it absolutely was a, a crazy week of double duty and uh we are a bit exhausted but um, in the energy and commerce space, which oversees and has jurisdiction o- over all of uh, our nation's healthcare, care, essentially, uh, we right. had before us the director of the FDA, the CDC, NIH, and uh, I produced an email, and the email was from 2020, and it was from then NIH director Francis Collins to CDC director Anthony Fauci, and CC was then the ethics, lead ethics director, uh, who is now currently the NIH director. And in the email, uh, Fauci, or I'm sorry, Francis Collins, NIH director, says to Fauci, uh, we need a quick and devastating, that's the quote, devastating takedown of these doctors who are dissenting from our official line. And Mm. these guys are getting out of control. They're getting too much traction. Uh, They even have a Nobel Prize winner who signed on to this. Um And this was in reference to the great barrington uh, declaration yeah, and, of course. and and we know there are thousands and thousands of epidemiologists and doctors and scientists who have signed on to this and the fact that you have not only proof of this communication where they say there needs to be a quick and devastating takedown of the of this this group, but then that same language pops up months later on march eighth twenty twenty one in communications between the Biden administration and Twitter executives. That right there is the connection of why it is so dangerous, this collusion between big government and big tech, and how then that became the premises, the pretext for the takedown and suppression of dissenting opinions on social media platforms. I guarantee you there are people out there who would have thought twice about succumbing to pressure when it came to vaccines or would have been better prepared and, and a little bit more knowledgeable had they had access to this. But instead, at every turn, that information was suppressed.
1: It is chilling to hear those words. We're going to use the power of the United States government to silence you because you disagree with our approach on a public policy matter just extraordinary these are such explosive documents and i think a great sign that transparency is now beginning to turn the tide in so many of these instances of cancel culture that the government and big tech and big media all colluded on congresswoman it is an extraordinary honor your work is amazing we're keeping an eye on it every day and we want to thank you for spending some time after a long but very eventful week
2: (laughs) i appreciate it have a wonderful wonderful weekend uh, cheers to all the listeners out there, and thank you for keeping your eye and all your
1: attention on this issue as well, John. I appreciate your efforts. It's a great honor to have you on the show. Have a great weekend. All right, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back for the commercial break, Chris Barnard from the
0: American Conservation Coalition is going to join us and have a great conversation about the conservative way to protect the environment. That's coming up next. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. We've been talking all week since the State of the Union about what President Biden did and didn't do in his big address before Congress. And one of those big moments in that speech was a claim that he had told the oil industry, "Yeah, we only need you for about another 10 years. And it actually generated laughter, not only from Republicans, but Democrats, too. Most people know that we're going to be in all of the above energy economy for many decades to come. But that doesn't mean we can't get to a cleaner environment and lower carbon emissions and take great care of this great country and its natural resources that we have our next guest has been instrumental in putting together and helping congress understand a clear conservative way that you can achieve conservation and clean air and clean water he's the external affairs director vp actually vice president of external affairs for the american conservation coalition and he is chris Barnard. and he joins us right now chris great to have you on the show Thanks for having me. I want to start with something that has always been mystifying to me, because for most of the last two decades, the Democrats in Congress and their allies in the traditional media have painted the Republicans as the anti-environmental party. And historically, nothing could be further from the truth, right? Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican, gave us the great park system. Ronald Reagan famous Republican, got the Montreal Protocol done, got the ozone hole in in the earth and all the problems of fluorocarbons figured out and fixed and really with very little drama, just got it done. And in the Trump administration, The most sweeping conservation proposal ever produced in America was was created a way to get carbon emissions down to the targets that people like Barack Obama and John Kerry and Joe Biden talk about. But by using natural gas and nuclear far more than what Democrats will be willing to do, you are in the middle of these debates. You are talking to Congress every day. What is it that Republicans need to do to show America they have a credible alternative, they do care about the environment, and better yet, they have one that's achievable? The electric vehicles are 10, 20, 30 years off from being a mass product. What can the Republicans do now to show they can get carbon emissions down, but do it in a way that doesn't wreck our economy? Yeah, I mean, that's a great
3: question. I think like what you alluded to, you have to start with showing that there is nothing inherently anti-environmental about being conservative. You mentioned Teddy Roosevelt. You mentioned Reagan. Nixon was the president who founded the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, Ulysses Grant was the president who founded the first national park in this country, Yellowstone. And so really, if you look at the history of conservatives in the environment, it's been nothing but leadership. So this this image that the left has portrayed that Republicans don't care about the environment is just is just completely wrong. But I do think that we also need to lead with our values a little bit more. I mean, most conservative people, people that live in rural areas across this country are skiers, hikers, farmers, ranchers, hunters. They love the environment. They are in the environment almost every single day. And I think one of the things that Republicans can do better is to talk about their personal love for the environment. And I think I've seen that changing with members of Congress on the Republican side talking about, I want to do the right thing policy-wise because I loved growing up as a Boy Scout or whatever it might be. Yeah. In terms of the solutions that you mentioned, I mean, one of the problems is that the left has just been so ideological about this that they actually are quite anti-scientific in many ways. They reject, for example, natural gas, which is cleaner than coal and emits fewer emissions. And the the reason the U.S. has reduced more emissions than the next ten countries combined in the world since 2005 is because we've gone from coal to more natural gas. The left has also traditionally been anti-nuclear energy which is the cleanest most reliable yeah. source of energy. And so what we need to be talking about is how can we actually have an all of the above approach to these issues? It's not just renewables versus everything else. It's using all of our resources to reduce emissions while keeping prices affordable and while keeping our energy grid reliable. And really that's the conversation that Republicans can lead.
0: I've talked to a lot of Republicans and privately, like John, we share your, your sentiments. We share the sentiments that Chris has, but you know what? Uh, it's, kind of uncomfortable for us because we don't want to get pigeonholed to being the radical greenies at AOC is I'm like you don't have to be you've got a hundred year history proving that you get things done in a credible way and that it's realistic I mean one of the problems with a lot of the Democratic plans are they have good intentions but the realism of their plan isn't there. You can't tell everybody go buy an electric vehicle tomorrow. When when they get home, they plug it in, they take the grid down in their neighborhood. There is a incongruous path that the Democrats have laid out that's expensive and unrealistic. It seems to me in the last six months to maybe a year. And, you know, our mutual friend who you work with every day, Benji Backer, has been talking about this. Nuclear is getting a more honest look. Democrats who shunned it are now realizing it's got to be part of the portfolio. California just staved the Diablo reactor. That's a big moment. That's a big reversal. Nuclear coming into the picture can really give both parties some breathing room to create a bipartisan path to a cleaner future, can it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I actually wrote uh, an article for The Wall Street Journal about six months ago, which said that... Um, the global nuclear comeback is here. Because like you say, it's not just in the U.S., the countries around the world are realizing that if we want to reduce emissions and at the same time have affordable, reliable energy, we need to have nuclear energy in the mix. And so in Japan, they're reopening their nuclear plants. In Korea, they're building new nuclear plants. Across the world, countries are investing in this because they realize it's the future. Unfortunately, one of the problems that we have in the United States right now is that the permitting process, the regulatory process to build new nuclear plants is absolutely crazy. It takes sometimes decades to get these projects off the ground. And the compliance costs in terms of the, the millions of dollars that nuclear plants have to pay every year just to run because of the regulations just makes it very difficult to allow it to be a bigger part of our energy mix. And so what we should be looking at is how can we make it easier to build this crucial source of energy? Right now, all we're doing is making it harder.
0: Such a great point. And we had Rich Powell from ClearPath on the TV show a couple days ago, and he brought to light something I've been hearing a lot about from people in the clean energy sector, people in the construction sector, which is after Joe Biden gets the money into the marketplace and wants to try to get things going on clean energy, his own government gets in the way of allowing these projects to grow through the permitting process, which comes to a screeching halt. How big a impediment is the bureaucratic permitting process to actually making some inroads on things like a new nuclear reactor, a carbon capture project? Uh, it seems to me that the government has gotten in the way of its own plan.
3: Yeah, I'll put a number on it for you. Um, a, a study from the University of Princeton showed that of these billions of dollars that were spent under the Democrats' climate agenda, the the Inflation Reduction Act, 80% of the potential emissions reductions from that package will be wasted if we don't make it easier to build projects in this country. So what happens right now is that we have a a regulatory process, which is called the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA for short. And what it does is essentially forces these projects to undergo intensive reviews of the environmental impacts And at the end of the day, on average, it delays a project by four and a half years and around $5 million in regulatory costs. And so really, you have these projects that are ready to be built across the country, and it's just impossible to get them permitted on time so that we can start building this. And it's not just energy. It's also bridges and roads and all kinds of other critical infrastructure for this country, but right now, that is the biggest obstacle to anything clean energy related being built in this country, and Democrats are the ones that are defending it, rather than trying to reform it. And Republicans are leading the conversation on why we need to reform it immediately, so that we can actually start building the things that we need to build.
0: Shovel ready has become shovel hanging on the hook because no one can get them working. It's amazing the slow down. And, you know, if it's going to be no, it should be no in a year, right? It shouldn't take four years to get a no answer. And if it's going to be yes, speed up the yeses so that we can get real projects exactly. going and really get at the reduction process of for carbon reductions, which I think everyone agrees is a good idea. No one, no one's for more carbon emissions. Than we're for a cleaner environment cleaner water cleaner air and i think that's a moment do you see some movement among the republicans in the house to get reform going and do they have any partners in the senate that might be able to help them yeah i mean the energy and commerce and house natural resources committees are very much
3: leading the conversation on permitting reform Um, and we should by the end of february already see kind of the emergence of a bit of a package to to start reforming this Uh, on the senate side obviously Democrats are still in control of the Senate, so you need some bipartisan uh, coalition to get permitting reform through. Fortunately, you have senators like Senator Manchin, who's been very interested in permitting reform. And there are other Democratic senators that that I've talked to that have really expressed interest in in making this happen because they're starting to realize how important it is. So I'm optimistic about it. Uh, ACC, the organization I work for, is is helping push uh, a little bit of a bipartisan coalition around this stuff so hopefully we'll start seeing move that move very soon
0: there was a really good op-ed in my old uh, newspaper the hill where i used to work recently about clean energy is national security and i think that's a component and an argument that maybe americans weren't thinking a lot about until the russia ukraine conflict began i should say began anew because it's round two from 2014 And people really realize, well, wait a second, Vladimir Putin uses energy as a weapon of war. Yeah, he does. Wait a second, we were energy dependent, now we're not. How important is it for those who want to get all of this done, which is clean energy and energy independence, to keep reminding people that this just isn't a market or environmental issue, it's also a security issue?
3: Yeah, I mean, we're seeing firsthand in Europe the extent to which they uh, traded their domestic independence for reliance on a country like Russia, and it's been biting them uh, for the last year right now, Um, and I think we have to look at, there's a reason why China is building nuclear plants, why they're building battery production plants, why they're monopolizing critical mineral supply chains, why they're building solar panels, it's because they realize that these clean energy uh, goods and services are are the, the oil of the future. They understand that countries will rely on them more and more. And if they monopolize them, that's leverage that they can have over other countries. And the U.S. is unfortunately really falling behind. Uh, we're not making it easy enough to invest in these things. And and really, at the end of the day, if we want to secure our energy future, then we need to be looking at all of these energy sources, not just oil and gas, not just wind and solar, but also batteries and critical minerals, hydrogen, um, nuclear energy, and all these other sources because if we don't do that, then ultimately we'll be relying on countries like China.
0: Yeah, such an important reminder. China, Russia, OPEC nations—they're none of them are have our best interests. And it's interesting when we take steps towards energy independence and clean energy independence, we end up having more leverage. And you, you like, for instance, the Abraham Accords got done with the Arab countries at a time when we were. Becoming energy independent because they knew, hey, listen, we don't need you. So maybe you might wanna need us a little bit more. It has this incredible effect. It allows when you're energy independent and you're clean energy independent, you have a negotiating leverage that you don't have in the current scenario that Joe Biden has left us in. Pretty remarkable. I want to ask about this. It happened in the speech Tuesday night. The president went off script, at least according to his team and told an anecdote, he's with oil industry officials, ah, we need you for about another 10 years. He actually got laughed at by both members of both parties when he said it. It's not helpful when the president who's leading the clean energy conversation makes a statement that's just not true, right? There's nobody in Wall Street, nobody in the EPA, the Energy Department, who thinks that oil is gone in 10 years. How big a disservice was that moment in the speech a couple of nights ago?
3: So I'll actually maybe give a little bit of a positive spin to start with, which is that a lot of the people pushing kind of the extreme climate rhetoric on the left they want fossil fuels like oil and gas to be shut down overnight right the president recognizing that it's going to be here for at least a decade and it's going to be here for much longer than he said but him even recognizing that it's going to be needed for that time is is, we saw a lot of the democrats booed that because they have this kind of insane rhetoric that we need to shut it down overnight so i think first of all that was kind of a, a moment of candor from him that he was like well, we're, we are going to need it. The problem is that he's not realistic enough about the fact that we're going to need it for much longer yeah. than just a decade. And and right now, actually, one of the things that Democrats aren't talking about is that U.S. oil and gas, if we export it to other countries around the world, we can help them reduce emissions. Yeah. A, because our production is so cleaner, cleaner and produces right? f- fewer emissions. Yeah. That B, also, because if they're relying on coal and they move to American natural gas or oil, that actually reduces their emissions a lot as well and so there's not not just a, an energy security and a national security angle for this domestic oil production but there's also a climate angle because we can help other countries reduce their reliance on countries like china iran saudi arabia and actually also reduce their emissions in the same in, at the same time
1: yeah, it's a
0: win-win and a win it's so much more Indeed. common sense I, one of the great things and it's why, why i love bringing you and benji and others from acc on is this is common sense. It's actually not rocket science. It's common sense. And too much of the climate debate has been hijacked by ideology and spin and not enough about just smart people getting in a room. We can figure this out. We can actually hit the targets that everyone wants to hit, but without wrecking the economy. And on that front, I want to finish up with something that I think's lost in the conversation. The president, I think, did on multiple occasions on Tuesday night say hey i want to work with republicans i want to work with you i want to work with you Uh, we can get things done let's get the job done i think he used something like that let's get it finished the inflation reduction act while it had some very good climate things in it things that could help the climate it was done by a complete shoehorn right democrats forced it on the republicans they didn't get the buy-in of republicans that is setting back the opportunity to get to a cleaner america as well isn't it
3: yeah i mean absolutely and at the end of the day if you want to have durable policy that strengthens America, reduces prices, and also helps tackle climate change, we're going to need both sides the, at the table. The president said in his, in his State of the Union that climate change affects anyone, not just red states or blue states. It affects everyone. That he should match that rhetoric with actually the policies that are bipartisan and actually allow Republicans to have a voice in there as well. The Inflation Reduction Act didn't do that. Um, and one of the reasons that this whole permitting reform discussion, which was supposed to go alongside the Inflation Reduction Act, it didn't happen is because of the political process that they chose to take. And that's really going to end up hurting us if we don't find a bipartisan solution to that as soon as possible. So mm-hmm. I think you should walk the talk, not just talk it.
0: Both sides got to give a little to get a lot. And I think that that's the great opportunity that lies ahead, that natural gas plus nuclear getting us to the bridge. And then, you know, renewables are going to keep growing and the electric vehicles will go. We'll get the grid built out, which is a 10- or 20-year process. And then everyone who's trying to get to a cleaner future are going to have a pathway. It could be electric vehicles. It could be natural gas. It could be nuclear energy. But the path we're taking now, we're running a lot of bills up. And we're not getting a lot of reductions in carbons the way we could achieve it. It's got the cart, too, before the horse, I think. Chris, it's always an honor to have you or Benji or anyone from ACC on. Real quickly, how do people follow the great work of the American Conservation Coalition? How can they get involved?
3: Uh, You can check out our website online. It's acc.eco, E-C-O, uh, so you can see all of our work there. We also have a climate platform, which is based in Common Sense and American Innovation that's called The Climate Commitment. You can go on theclimatecommitment.com. Uh, so I would say those are really the two best places to start. And you can also always follow us on Twitter uh, at ACC underscore national to see all of the good stuff we're getting up to on social
0: media as well. Great resources and great information. We love the partnership we have with ACC and ClearPath and other great honest thinkers about this issue. Chris, great honor to have you on. We'll be sure to be getting you back on real soon because a lot of things are ahead in the Congress that we're going to want to be evaluating. But great honor to have you on today. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. All right, folks, we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. we gonna take a quick commercial break, but more discussion right ahead. All right, folks, that wraps up our Friday edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. A big thank you to Congresswoman Kamek, to Chris Barnard, to intriguing investigations. Go check out those FBI stories I told you about, and we'll have a pretty good rest of your Friday afternoon. A lot of good news going on. Also, if you get a chance, be sure to tune in Saturday. FBI whistleblower George Hill gave us his story first. It's an amazing story of raising new concerns about the January 6th investigation and civil liberties. And whether the FBI is following its rules or has a dual system, George Hill will be here. He spent some time with Amanda and I. You also have something from his lawyer, Jason Foster. going to put all that together for you tomorrow. You're going to like it. All right. Be sure to tune in. Have a great weekend, folks. God bless you and good night. Folks, everyone knows the next medical crisis is just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of a pandemic or something much more mundane like a tick bike.